Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm going to talk to you about the Divine Office, all right? But it's not going to be maybe what you're expecting. So um, for the details, we'll have a question and answer period, and you can always talk to me um, after the talk. And um, But I want to um, just tell you that the official name for what I call the Divine Office is the Liturgy of the Hours. The Liturgy of the Hours has something like 10 syllables, and it's a long phrase. And I come from a Benedictine tradition where it's called either the Divine Office or the Work of God. And so I'm going to use that term. The Divine Office is just much simpler. But I just want you to know that we're talking about the Liturgy of the Hours. Um, and uh, so I'm going to begin by talking to you about the creation of hours. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let, there, let them be lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. So what is the liturgy of the hours? It is, in the most general sense, the blessing placed upon time upon all the hours and seasons of our lives by God and by the church. So that the whole of time in its varied aspects and levels is sanctified by prayer. All the changes over the course of each day, all the seasons of each year, the entire economy of uh, salvation represented to us again and again through each liturgical year. All of it is blessed and made holy by liturgical prayer. In speaking of the relationship between the Eucharist and the divine office, the general instruction on the liturgy of the hours reminds us of two points. The general instruction on the liturgy of the hours is the introduction when the new books were produced after the Vatican Council 
um, there was this very lengthy introduction. It's called the general instruction. And there's a lot of good information in there. It, the, it's very dry. If you've ever read any encyclicals, you know the style. But it's not anything that's going to give you a high reading. But, <laughs> but it's informative. All right. So the two points are this. The first is that the Eucharist is the center and high point of the whole life of the Christian community. And the divine office extends to the different hours of the day, the praise and thanksgiving, the memorial of the mysteries of salvation, the petitions and the foretaste of heavenly glory that are all present in the Eucharistic ministry. So the first point is that the divine office is an extension of the the mysteries that are celebrated in the Mass. Second, the divine office is, quote, an excellent preparation for the celebration of the Eucharist itself, for it inspires and deepens in a fitting way the dispositions necessary for the fruitful celebration of the Eucharist. So the recitation of the hours during the day looks back to the Eucharist that has already been celebrated, and it looks forward to the one that will be. So drawing upon the imagery of Genesis, we may say that the Eucharist is the greater light to rule the day. The hours of the divine office are the lesser lights to rule the night. Both together form the natural rhythm of life in the church. So I love this image. the greater and the lesser nights uh, is so, um, it's clear and it's memorable and it shows well the relationship between the mass and the liturgical hours. And it helps us remember that all of time has been sanctified and that the balance between the mass and the hours is a rhythm as natural to our souls as the alternation between night and date is to our bodies and to the whole of creation. So just by participating in the Liturgy of the Hours, we are inserted into a rhythm that is deeply um, congenial, uh, not congenial, it's natural to us, and it's fortifying in a very deep way. (coughs) Excuse me. Remember also that St. Augustine says that since we, like everything else, are made for God, he says that we have a natural need to praise him, Our hearts long for prayer, even if we do not realize it. And this is where the unquiet comes in, the unease, if we do not have this contact with God through prayer. So we need the natural rhythm of prayer represented by the greater and the lesser lights. This rhythm of the life of the prayer in the church is one of God's greatest gifts to us. It is one of the ordinary ways in which He invites us and arouses us to praise him, um, in the language of St. Augustine. Now, listen to what St. Thomas has to say about the Eucharist. This is one of my most favorite passages from St. Thomas. In question 79, article 1 of the third part of the Summa, he says that the normal effect of reception of the Eucharist is spiritual delight. So this is what he says. Every effect that material food and drink have with respect to the life of the body, that is, that they sustain, augment, 
repair, and delight. So sustain, augment, repair, and delight. This same and entire effect this sacrament has with respect to the life of the soul. The Eucharist sustains, sustains, augments, repairs, and delights. When we receive the Eucharist with understanding and integrity, there is indeed a joy and a delight that comes to us as the normal effect of the sacrament. It is a joy deeper and more permanent and often more quiet than the ebb and flow of feeling on the surface of our lives. It comes from an awareness of the real presence of Christ in the depth of our soul. And again, this is not particularly emotional, but it is something that we sense. And there's a, in one sense, it is so quiet that it is noticeable by its absence. But it is there, and I, I sort of, in answer to the question that was asked last night about the divide between the intellectual side and the emotional side as we as we enter into prayer there's a sense in which this delight this very deep delight that comes from the eucharist takes over our hearts as it as we go through life it becomes a stabilizing factor um and it begins to overflow into the lower regions the the sub-valve regions of our, if you think of the valve here, of our souls. Now, the next step is, if there is an essential relationship between the Eucharist and the divine office, and if what St. Thomas says of the Eucharistic joy is true, then the natural effect of the recitation of the divine office should also be a joy and delight, lesser than, but similar to the joy that comes from the reception of the Eucharist. In the language of the Fathers of the Church, we may call this liturgical joy by the Latin name so dear to St. Ambrose of Milan, sobria ebrietas. So what does that mean? Sobria means sober. Ebrietas means inebriation. So it is a sober drunkenness. If you want to laugh, that's fine. It's, it's actually... Um, a little bit funny, but <laughs> that's what it is. That's the term they use. All right. So um, this drunkenness is entire, yet perfectly sober. All right. Both at once, an oxymoron here. It is the hallmark of Catholic liturgical prayer. It's one of the great goods that comes from a participation in the prayer of the church. So in the Old Testament, intoxication, intoxication sorry, is an image for the work of God in the soul. In Psalm 35.9, uh, that's according to the Benedictine, the old numbering. Uh, in Psalm 35.9, for example, the psalmist says, They shall be inebriated with the abundance of your house, and you will make them drink from the torrent of your pleasure. And in Proverbs 9, 1 to 5, we read that wisdom has built a house. Come and drink the wine which I have mingled for you. So all of these images from the Old Testament have been taken up into New Testament exegesis. Um, and they refer to the Eucharist, but also to the, the effect of the operation of the Holy Spirit in our minds and hearts as we pray. 
In the New Testament, it is an image for the work of the Holy Spirit in the soul. St. Paul says in the epistle to the Ephesians, this is chapter 5, verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So do you see that both of these things are in the verse? So the implication is that the Spirit gives a kind of drunkenness. Um, and St. Augustine, we'll see this in a minute, is going to fly on this. Give us a great commentary on it. So for St. Paul, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is true and holy intoxication. The early church fathers and other early uh, Christian writers developed this theme at length, both in their commentaries on the Psalms and in other Old Testament passages, and then from the New Testament. And then from the wider tradition, because this idea of intoxication was also... um, it was an idea that was dear to the heart of Plotinus, who was a Neoplatonist. He was in the third century AD, and he had some knowledge of Christianity, but not from the best sources. Um, but he speaks about uh, this. The it, it's it's one of the ways in which he describes the emanation of the of the um, of the what he calls hypostasis, the the um, the the intellect from the one and then the world soul from the one. This is all very platonic. But the image of intoxication had a rather wide um, application. So I'm going to give you two examples from the New Testament. The first is from St. Ambrose's hymn, Splendor Paterne Gloriae. We uh, sing this on Monday of weeks, Monday morning at Lauds in weeks one and three. And this is stanza six, all right? And it says, let Christ himself become our food, our faith in him become our drink. Let us imbibe with deepest joy the spirit's sober drunkenness. And in Latin, that last line is ebrietatem spiritus. All right. So this stanza is the jewel of the hymn. When our souls are well-ordered, that stanzas three and four, and our bodies are chaste and our faith living and true, that stanza five, then we are in a condition to receive Christ in the Eucharist and to drink deeply from the the Spirit's sober intoxication, the fruit of which is joy. In stanzas three to five, we pray to the Father, And it's very clear, the word pater comes again and again in these stanzas. In this stanza, we ask for the perfect enjoyment of the two other persons of the Trinity. These are the two that he, the Father, has sent. Notice that the hymn does not ask that we become drunk after drinking deeply of something, of something else. It doesn't say, uh, may we drink of this, this sober intoxication and may that make us happy. doesn't say that at all. It says, rather, may we imbibe the sober drunkenness itself. This indicates that the sobria ibrietas is a kind of shorthand for the full operation of the Holy Spirit within our souls. Um, St. Ambrose, in his sobria ibrietas, belongs to an entire tradition of mysticism um, that was begun in the Old Testament and continued in the early church. 
And I just, this is an aside, but I, it's, it shows you the power of this expression. So it was so emblematic that St. Augustine in the Confessions, when he describes his first meeting with the Bishop of Milan, says this, I came to Milan to Ambrose the bishop, whose discourse at that time energetically ministered to your people the fatness of your grain, the joy of your oil, and the sober intoxication of your wine. So this became a kind of signature phrase. All right. Now, this is the second example. In his instructions to the newly baptized, this is uh, number one on your handout. St. Augustine gives a beautiful commentary on the passage from St. Paul in Ephesians. So um, after quoting the passage, which is there, we get drunk with it, we've, uh, with the Holy Spirit. Um, he says, the Holy Spirit has begun to dwell in you through baptism. Let him not depart. Do not shut him out from your hearts. He is a good guest. He finds the empty, he fills you. He finds the hungry, he feeds you. Then he finds the thirsty, he inebriates you. Let him be the one to inebriate you. For the apostle says, do not get drunk on wine in which there is all debauchery. And as if he wishes to teach us how we should be drunk, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Singing to each other with hymns, this is the continuation of the, of the epistle, singing to other with hymns, psalms, and spiritual canticles, singing in your hearts to the Lord. So hymns, psalms, spiritual canticles, that's the, the, um, the uh, bread and butter of the divine office. He who rejoices in the Lord and sings praise to the Lord with great exaltation is he not like a drunkard? I approve this drunkenness, for in your presence, O Lord, is the fountain of life, and you shall give them to drink from the torrent of your delights. Do you see how he's woven in this, this passage from Psalm 35 into his exegesis on um, the New Testament passage? And this is typical. And one of the things that you will see as the more you read St. Thomas's commentaries on Scripture he does exactly the same thing. He's full of scripture. They all knew it by heart, and it just comes to them when they need it, when they are commenting on a passage. All right. Um, finally, although in his commentary in this passage from, from Ephesians, St. Thomas writes in a different mode, he also identifies the intoxication of the Holy Spirit, but in this time from Romans, he identifies it with the fervor of devotion. That's Romans 12, 11. And with joy and spiritual gladness, that's Romans 14, verse 17. He also reminds us, and I thought about this and I thought, oh, maybe that's not right. But St. Thomas clearly thought it was right. Um, he also reminds us that on the morning of Pentecost, everyone thought the apostles were drunk. You see, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. All right. In the Summa, where he considers the fruits of the Holy Spirit, this is a very lovely uh, question. This is the first part of the second part, question 70, article 3. St. Thomas points out that joy is the second fruit that must follow charity, poured forth into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. 
just, and just as this is a sneak preview for you, peace is the third fruit of the Holy Spirit, and it must follow upon joy. So all of these are linked, and they're not just linked in some kind of clever, scholastic way. They are linked really and truly in our souls. So what St. Thomas has to say about the fruits of the Holy Spirit is important for us spiritually. As their name implies, the fruits are the beautiful and rich effects of the operation of the Holy Spirit within us. He is the giver of gifts, the charity of God poured forth into our souls at baptism. All of his gifts bear fruit over time. One of the great principles of theology and of the spiritual life is that grace perfects nature. It does not replace it. We cannot expect to be fully formed spiritually from the very beginning. It is a blessed and glorious process in which nature and grace together lead us to full maturity, to what St. Paul calls the full stature of Christ. Even the child Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and grace with God and men. So here's the beautiful passage from Ephesians. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, until we all attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so just commenting on that, we should not be, you're all at the beginning of your adult lives. Don't be too hard on yourselves. You're not perfect yet, but as time goes on, the kind of integration that you are seeking and talking about will, little by little, um, instill itself in you as the work of the Holy Spirit. So little by little, he will just take over your souls. And um, you may not realize it while it's happening. That doesn't mean everything's going to be fine and dandy. But it does mean that you will be able someday to step back and say, God's work in me has been truly wonderful. All right. So we need to be clear. This is my little caveat. The joy that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit is deep and real. But it is not an emotional movement of the soul. It can be at times. Um, at times, uh, it, it can be emotional, and the saints have all known great ecstasies at times in their lives. But the heart of the Christian life is the cross. Christ hanging on the cross, reigning from the wood. So that's from um, Vexilla Regis, the beautiful uh, hymn for Holy Week um, for Vespers. And it says, Regnavit aligno Deus. God reigns from the wood. This is verse three. Um, some of the versions have taken this out very sadly. Um, so I don't know if it's in the Dominican um, office, but it is in the original. So the joy of the Holy Spirit is compatible with this Christ reigning from the cross. And I just want to point out a couple of things to you. 
at the Last Supper, so in the final discourse, Christ mentions the word joy seven times. It's a very serious discourse. He's preparing the, the, the apostles for his crucifixion. And yet this word comes back again and again. And one, I'll just quote one of the verses. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's uh, John chapter 15, 11. In the epistle to the Hebrews, we also find this exhortation. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and dis- and despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of god so for the joy that was set before him it wasn't a very joyous experience on the cross for sure but the joy is part of the essential nature of our spiritual life. So in the spiritual life, there are times of consolation and times of dryness. That's the 16th century manner of speaking. We may not always feel a deep joy from the reception of the Eucharist and from our life of prayer. We may even go through periods in which we have little insight into the depths of our souls, strangers to ourselves. But in a real sense, this does not matter. It simply doesn't matter. Um, Benedictines are um, also an ancient order, like the Dominicans, and we don't worry too much about, you know, I mean, obviously you need to be realistic about yourself, but there are so many more important things to do than to think about yourself. And our, our program is to become holy by being immersed in holy things one reason why the divine office is so important for us. Um, And uh, the other thing is that there are moments of grace in every life, and it's important for us to to remember these moments and to be faithful to them. Um, I have a friend who um, was a seminarian during the mid-60s. He was very disillusioned with what he found at the seminary. The war in Vietnam was going on. He was very patriotic. And so he decided to take time out and go to Vietnam. So he enlisted. He was very good. He grew up in the Maine woods. And so, you know, slithering on the ground like that was a very easy thing for him. And he was uh, the captain of a little squadron. And um, he was reconnoitering a place for them to camp at night. And he tripped over a mine. So he was terribly injured. He spent months and months in Walter Reed, which was the main um, army hospital then. And he came out of it all blind. Um, And his injuries were such that he was not accepted into the priesthood. He went on and he got a doctorate in philosophy. He went to Thomas Aquinas College. That's where I met him. And he um, got a doctorate in philosophy. And he's one of the most charitable men I know. He celebrates every day, every year, the, the, the date of his accident. It's like a, a, it's like a liturgical holiday for him. And he does that because God has given him so many graces through this horrific accident. Um, so anyway, just remember, and when I um, entered the monastery, and I told him that I was entering the monastery, 
He said to me, now listen, there will be good times and hard times. You must always be faithful. You must always remember the high points in your life. And um, I, uh, I've taken that to heart, and it's been very consoling throughout the years. Um, do you know what? Can I, have, can I have a glass of water? I'm so sorry. Is that possible? Yes, I have Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm beginning to sound like a toad. <laughs> um, all right. So I want to share with you one of my favorite psalms, because we're going to talk a little bit about psalms. When the going gets tough, this is a good verse to have, all right? Now, I'm going to give you it to you in Latin and then my translation, which it will not be in any Bible. Um, so in Latin, it is expecta dominum, expecta dominum viriliter age et confortetur cortum et sustine dominum, all right? So this is uh, Psalm 26, verse 14 or 27. Um, all right. So, expecta dominum, wait for the Lord. Viriliter age. So, vir is the word for man. So, viril comes from it. And I, so act like a man, man up. <laughs> Et confortetur cortum, and strengthen your heart. Get it going there. Don't be a whiny baby. <laughs> And sustine dominum. So sustine means to, to bear up under something. So bear up under the Lord. All right, so in my little translation, this is, wait for the Lord, man up, be stout-hearted, and bear up as you wait for the Lord, okay? Sometimes we need those verses. It's wonderful to have them. They're so energizing that they actually are enough to bring us out of our, to make us laugh and bring us out of our our funk. Um, all right. Now, I want to share with you, um, we can't read it because it's way too long, but the second entry on your handout is a classic. So you've received two classics from the monastic spiritual literature this uh, time, the one from St. Augustine yesterday and this one from Abba, Abba Isaac. So Abba, as we know, is father, and it was a term that was used for the the wise old men, as they were called, uh, not, all, not all, of them, all of them were old, but they, that was an honorific title to the monks in the desert, the early monks. So Abba Isaac um, has the 10th Conference of Cashin, and it's all about um, how to form a habit of contemplative prayer in your heart. Now, he's very practical. I haven't given all of it to you because it, it's too long. But... As you may have noticed, our offices always begin, um, Oh God, come to my assistance. Oh Lord, make haste to help me. Now, I don't know if that was already a practice when Cashin was writing or if Cashin is responsible for this, but this is used universally in the church to begin every office. And as you will see, this passage is all about this psalm verse and how it is good for every occasion. And he explains it. So the idea is that you. Take verses like this. I'm giving you this because of this verse, but also you can use other verses. This verse that I just gave you is wonderful to repeat on a regular basis when you need to be shored up. Um, and uh, so please read this because this is a very precious um, passage on um, 
cultivating, using the, the Psalter, using the Word of God to cultivate um, a, a strong spiritual life in your own soul. The other thing, too, that I want you to notice is at the end, remember that St. Thomas was brought up at Monte Cassino. He spent about nine or ten years there from the time when he was a child till he was a mid-teenager. And he read Cassian. So the quote that we have, which is number seven on your first handout, is very reminiscent of the end of this. So he's building. They all built, built on each other. St. Gregory built on Cassian. St. Thomas built on St. Gregory, St. Augustine, and Cassian. And so this is how this wonderful tradition was, was developed. So you'll see um, it's very important. You must remember this that St. Thomas was a Benedictine before he was a Dominican. <laughs> All right. So, um, the, uh, the, it's, one of the things, we don't think about the fruits of the Holy Spirit and the gifts. We know about them from Pentecost, but those gifts are meant to be fruitful in us. And so little by little, they will all develop. And the divine office is a magnificent um, tool and environment in which uh, they develop. All right. So what is the structure of the Liturgy of the Hours? We're going to be a little more practical now. Um, there are different versions. So there is the monastic office and the Roman office. And um, if at night prayer, we had a beautiful taste of uh, Dominican chant, Dominican liturgy. So. It used to be in the early church that there were many, many different ways of doing the divine office. There was the way in Milan, there was the Mozarabic um, tradition in Spain, and um, the Gallican tradition in France, and the, the Italian tradition. And they were all basically doing the same thing, but they had their own music and their own um, hymns. And uh, little by little, um, especially after the Carolingian reforms, which took place in the basically in the ninth century, a late eighth, ninth, and early tenth century, they um, there was much more uniformity was developed. But we still have these wonderful strands, and one of them is that the, the monastic, um, the Benedictine office, for example, is longer and more um, uh, slightly the the psalms are arranged in a slightly different way. Um, and uh, the other thing is, too, that there are differences in the hours. So there are the greater hours, which are the Office of Readings, Lauds, and Vespers. And then there are the little hours that go through the day, and they're named after the hours of the Roman day, Prime, text, Terse, Sext, Known, and then Compline, which is the last hour of the day. Um, now... Um, after part of the reform was to shorten the divine office. If I say my full Benedictine office, it takes me about three or four hours every day. And that's just, um, I, I need God to give me a few more hours in order to accomplish it. Um, so the general ordering of the hymn, of the office, is to begin with a hymn. There are antiphons and psalms, then a reading, then a verse or a responsory. The Gospel Canticles at Lauds, we have the Benedictus, at Vespers, we have the Magnificat, and at Compline, we have the Nunc Dimittis, which we had last night. And then uh, a final prayer and the dismissal. Um, so God speaks to us through Scripture, 
through, and we speak to him through the choice of scriptural texts that are made by the church, and also through hymns, intercessions, and prayers. So the divine office is this wonderful exchange between God and the praying church. Um, and the Psalter is the backbone of each hour of the office. So a series of psalms from 3 to 12, sometimes a large psalm will be broken up into parts, is designated for each hour. St. Benedict, in his rule, directs his monks to say the whole Psalter in the space of a week. And there are various other shamas um, in the revised liturgy of the hours. So the Psalter is the jewel of the divine office. The Psalter is the Holy Spirit's prayer book. It's really important to remember that. Sorry, I sound like Archbishop Tenoya. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, the uh, St. Paul says that we do not know how to pray as we ought, and therefore God has given us the Holy Spirit. So th in a way, that's an understatement. God has given us the entire Psalter. So he's given us the words to pray. And this is the most amazing gift, because if you learn how to make the Psalms your own, they become your own personal prayer. But at the same time, they are the divinely inspired prayers that God has, God has composed himself. All right. Um, the, uh, so with study and praying on the verses of the Psalms that hold a particular meaning for us, so this Deus in auditorium meum, that God um, come to my assistance and the wait for the Lord. These are verses that um, have particular significance for us in particular circumstances. Little by little, they become our personal prayer, and they are more wonderful than anything we could compose on our own. This is one thing, you know. It's great to have spontaneous prayer. I my whole uh, my mother is a convert, so her whole side of the pro family is Protestant. Spontaneous prayer is something that they do very readily and well, and they do a lot of it. But still, it's coming from us. The great thing about the Psalter is that it can be our own, but it's coming directly from God. So there is a kind of objectivity in that that is hugely fortifying and very refreshing. All right. Um, so it is uh, these complementary sides of the divine office, the divinely inspired text from scripture, and the text composed by the church. Together, they create a great stability and objectivity. I can still remember the day when I was a postulant, when I figured this out. It was so wonderful. I realized that I could make this the, the prayer of my life, that I could actually make a marriage between the divine office and what was going on inside of myself. Um, in the ten, in the, again, in the 10th conference, which is where your extract comes on the handout, Abba Isaac says this, the one who continually nourished by the Psalms and the mysteries revealed in the, in the scriptures eventually takes into himself all of the thoughts and sentiments of the Psalms in such a way as to sing them as if they were his own thoughts and sentiments, his own prayer that he utters with the deepest conviction of heart. 
Romano, Romano Guardini also, in his um, Spirit of the Liturgy, says something that's really wonderful. It is that the objectivity of liturgical prayer protects the spiritual modesty of individual prayer. Christ says that when you pray, go into your room and close the door, and it should just be between you and God. So you're not meant to take the top off the perfume bottle and let everyone have a whiff. It's very personal. It's for yourself. And so this is what he says. There are certain feelings of surrender, certain aspects of interior candor that cannot be publicly proclaimed at any rate in their entirety without danger to spiritual modesty. The liturgy has perfected a masterly instrument that has made it possible for us to express our inner life in all its fullness and depth without divulging our secrets. We can pour out our hearts and still feel that nothing has been dragged to light that should remain hidden. And so when you're praying the Psalms, and all of a sudden there's something, there's pray this Psalm verse and it just hits you like, this is so beautiful and so wonderful. God is speaking to me. So you just receive it, enjoy it, and then you keep reciting the Psalms. And it's between you and God, and you are in this wonderful rhythm, and then you can always come back to it after the, the office is over. Um, all right, so the last thing that I want to talk to you about a little bit is Lexio Divina, and I think we will talk about this more later. But Lexio Divina is, Lexio is reading Divina Divine, so it's um, what is often called spiritual reading in other circumstances. But in Benedictine circles, it's Lexio Divina. And I, that's a better title because it's, it, right away, it leads you to think of scripture, which is the basis for this. And it's through Lexio Divina that we make this wonderful marriage between the divine office and the interior prayer that comes from the deepest conviction of our, of our own hearts. So what is Lexio Divina? Um, it is the monastic name given to the slow, steady, faithful activity of reading, meditating, and praying on the scriptures that ultimately forges the bond between the prayer of the church and our intimate prayer of the heart. So one of the important things about Lexio Divina is that it be regular. If you're in a monastic life, there is time set aside every day for it, and um, so it makes it very easy. It's harder for you all in the in in the the rhythm of your academic lives. But if you can set aside time, um, maybe not every day, but every week, to read scriptures, meditate on them, I'm going to talk to you about what happens with in Lexio Divina. You will see that little by little, it'll make an enormous difference. Um, and it will help you in your prayer life. All right, so Lexio Divina is divided into parts. Um, this is always a very good academic st strategy, but it's not necessarily a good prayer strategy. Um, and uh, you have to be careful. Don't take these in a linear progression. That would not be good. So the parts are reading, meditation, prayer, and contemplation. All right? So, um, the heart moves very readily from one to the other, and we need to be sensitive. We can't force our way through all. You have to say, well, 20 minutes has gone by, now 10 minutes left, it's time to go on, move on to 
prayer and contemplation. It doesn't work that way. Um, and the other thing is that we need to be very sensitive to the suggestions of the Holy Spirit. By that, I don't mean sensitive to everything. But um, if something strikes us that we read, we should stop and ponder it. And Lexio Divina is a leisurely time when we have the space to do that. So when you're reciting the Psalms in, uh, the, in the church, you can't stop. You can note this particular passage that has struck you. But in Lexio Divina, you can stop and you can just think about it for a few minutes and then move on. Um, so Lexio Divina is a time when we give ourselves wholly and intently, but peacefully to the pursuit of God in his word. So it's very much of a prayerful time. It's not an academic study time, though that academic study may be part of it. All right, so reading. When you're reading, you are simply doing what you are used to do, doing. You are, have a text in front of you, and you are um, going through the text, taking note of it, trying to understand sentences that are not as clear or passages, making notes for what you want to investigate more thoroughly. You're doing what you need, what you know how to do very well. Meditation. In meditation, you stop. And you think about the sentences that have particularly struck you. You also memorize. Now, this is one thing that we do very badly now. Our educational system does not help. But memorizing verses. So take this little psalm verse, the two that I've mentioned so far, and just take the time to memorize them, write them out on a flashcard or whatever, um, and uh, decide what you're going to focus on that day. It's a very simple process, but it's a process where it's the first process by which you are taking what is in a book and you are making it your own. Um, the, the ancients had a word for this. They called it rumination because the, the animals that ruminate, so cows have four stomachs, right? And they're calling up this, so don't, don't get too physical about it. It's kind of gross, but they, <laughs> they pull up what they've already eaten and they chew the cud, okay? They just sit there chewing. And that's what you need to do with these verses, with, these, with the sentences that you've read. You just work on them, memorize them. The, the ancients used to do it out loud. In fact, Caesarius of Arles, who wrote a, um, he's the first, his rule for women is the first rule that we have for a women's monastery. And he, well, he tells his sisters, don't make too, so much noise when you're ruminating that you disturb your neighbors. So it's sort of an interesting um, record of the widespread practice, spread practice. So when you're in your room and no one's around, memorize uh, and say it out loud. Um, then uh, pray about it. So what is it in this text that moved you? What do you want to ask our Lord for from it? And take it and make it into a petition that will give you what our Lord wants to give you. So basically, this is the two of you working together. Contemplation, in this sense, is something very simple. Um, when we were at the, um, it, the holy hour yesterday, there were probably moments when you weren't sitting there reading a book, you know, the whole time. You were just sitting there enjoying the Blessed Sacrament. And you don't necessarily need to do that for a long time. But it's that simple presence, 
you are present to God. He is present to you. Do you remember there's this wonderful, um, the curia of ours asked a peasant who spent a lot of time in the church just looking at the Blessed Sacrament. And he said, you know, he looks at me, I look at him. And that's all it was. It was just very peaceful, calm um, enjoyment. And those moments are precious, and they are the natural fruit of this process of Alexio Divina. You don't need to spend a long time in them, and you may not have time. You, you may have 20 minutes. 20 minutes is enough to do a very good Lexio Divina. All right. Um, the, uh, so I'm going to conclude, because I think it's probably high time. Um, there's more that can be said, but we can talk about this uh, later. So the divine office is a marvelous gift from Christ and the church. It is primarily a living and prayerful reflection on the scriptures as they shed light on the different aspects of our salvation and on the different aspects of our personal lives as we live through the liturgical year. The psalms and hymns invite us to identify with the praise and supplication they contain. They reach down into that part of our soul where the truths of the faith become anchored principles of the spiritual life. We are all invited to appropriate as our own the words of the Psalms and the Canticles. These insights are the wonderful aha moments when some text that we know well contains a grace we sense that is meant for us alone. You know the story of St. Anthony who came to church. He was late one morning, St. Anthony of the desert. He was late to church. He came in during the gospel. and they were reading the passage where, if you wish to follow me, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And it was like a lightning bolt. He came in, heard this, and said, this is what I have to do. And it was the moment when he received the vocation for his life. And we've all had, not necessarily moments that are that dramatic, but we've all had moments when we realize that God is speaking to us directly through the text. So the normal fruit of this appropriation and, and anchoring of the truths of the faith is sobria ebrietas. It is the native environment of the mystical life. That is, it is the base upon which the mystical life is built. This sober joy in the depths of the soul is the place of contact with God. It is where God ordinarily gives his grace. It is a deep sense that we are in the right place and that just as we are fed in the Eucharist, so are we fed by the rhythm of prayer that comes to us from the divine office. Remember that the third fruit of the Holy Spirit is peace and that it must follow charity and joy. So the great Dominican moral theologian Serve Pinkers wrote a commentary on the Beatitudes called the Pursuit of Happiness, God's Way. It's a great little book. So perhaps we could say that the divine office is the pursuit of mysticism, God's way. It's the ordinary splendor of life in Christ. Thank you. Does anyone have questions? Yes. Thank you, sister. Um, just a little bit more about joy. Um, you talked about how it was linked to 
the crucifixion, um, but at the same time, it's not like an emotional uh, experience. Like, I guess I'm still trying to figure out like what is this joy. All right, um, this is something that is it's difficult to explain. Let me just tell you a little story. Um, oh, all right. So, um, the how is it that joy is compatible with the crucifixion? Can you can you say more about the kind of joy that is not an emotional joy that we would have normally in human life, but one that is that is can legitimately be called joy, but is also compatible with suffering? Is that a fair? Okay. So, um, if I can just tell you a quick story, um, the martyrs of Lyon were um, they were martyred under um, Marcus Aurelius, the enlightened uh, emperor, and um, Saint Irenaeus wrote up uh, an account of the martyrdom afterwards. And um, apparently, the executioners said, "Well, we've got to demoralize these people." So there was a little slave girl named Blandina. She was very delicate, did not have good health, and they thought, "Okay, we'll crucify her literally, we'll put her on a cross, and she will be so." Uh, in such agony that she will demoralize everyone else. So they were totally wrong. <laughs> Candina up there on her cross became, as St. Irenaeus says, the mother of everyone else. She was encouraging them. She was telling them, be faithful, keep going. And um, uh, the I heard once a beautiful explanation of the difference with St. Thomas. I don't know where St. Thomas says this, but it was said to me as coming from St. Thomas. St. Thomas says, what is the difference between the gift of fortitude from the Holy Spirit and the virtue of fortitude that we cultivate one of the moral virtues? And this, what the response was that the gift of fortitude is a kind of interior sense of victory. So it's something that can be given to anyone. And clearly, Blandina did not have the virtue of fortitude. She, did, she wasn't even physically capable of it. But she had this wonderful gift. And I think that if you think about what was going on inside the heart of Landina when she was suffering so terribly, but she had a kind of interior sense that she was on the way to victory and that she could bring everyone with her. And it's so victory, obviously, this is a case of martyrdom, so we're thinking about victory, but there is this sense that God is with us. And this is what the, the fruits of the Holy Spirit are. They, are. they are the gift of the Holy Spirit. They don't come from us. They come from him. And it is this sense that we are where God wants us, that he is putting wind in our sails, and that he is helping us to live a life that is pleasing to him. And all of that is a cause of joy, but it's not a cause of joy in the sort of human um, sense of, you know, getting something that you want kind of joy. It's much deeper and it's much more, um, it's very silent. There have been times when I've had a sense and it has kind of astounded me that God could give me something so beautiful and so quiet. Um, this wonderful Italian mystic named Divo Barsati, who wrote a lovely commentary on the Song of Songs, says that there are regions of our heart that we don't even know exist. 
until God is there and shows them to us. So I, this is, I'm kind of speaking around the point, but do you have a sense of what I'm talking about? It's something that is very spiritual. It's not something that comes from us. But eventually, as we go through the spiritual life, this becomes more of a, I don't want to say a permanent fixture. That's not what I mean exactly. But it does, it's something that is, becomes more recognizable and more a part of our spiritual um, economy, interior landscape, if I can put it that way. Does that make sense? a little mysterious but i don't know if there's going to be like a concrete explanation um maybe um it might help to say that um i think for saint thomas joy is connected to the virtue of hope <laughs> that is that hope is that virtue wherein you are optimistic and confident in the face of an arduous good in other words the cross produces joy because you, 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 the conquering of, of death, of sin and death, brings a kind of joy. Now, it's, as Sister says, it's a, it's a deep inner interior joy. It's not like, you know, blow up balloons and be happy, happy, happy face. But it is this contentment, confidence, and joy that comes as a consequence of believing that the cross has conquered sin and death, and if we cling to the cross and allow ourselves to be conformed to it, there's the reward of eternal uh, joy, eternal life, you see. So that the joy comes both from the arduousness of what we have to face and the ultimate reward in heaven. It's, it's really about our, our end. Yeah. Think of St. Maximilian Kolbe, who's in the starvation bunker. What on earth caused him to sing hymns? You know, I mean, he didn't sing hymns because he said, well, all of these people are you know, they're starving to death, I've got to do something. I mean, maybe he did say that. But he had something inside of him that could sing in in an environment that is just brutal beyond belief. Um, I know that's experiential, but that is sort of the level on which we need to understand this. Does, does that help? Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. So you talk about, like... Uh... Like meditating on the scriptures and like something hitting you and like chewing on it and like all these things. What about when you're like sitting in front of the Bible? You're just like blah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I was talking about reading things from the scriptures and you have something that, that hits you and you stop and you meditate on it. But what happens when you read the Bible and you're sitting in front of it and it's all blah? <laughs> 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 okay, that happens to the best of us, all right? So you can't, that's just part of the rhythm of human life. But it's not going to be, now, please, Father, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe there are some saints who live their entire lives with this, in this state. But usually what happens is that we, there are rhythm, there's a rhythm, there's an up and a down. And it may be that while we are reading and just being not having anything coming to us particularly, we are preparing ourselves for something later on. Um, one of the things that we need to do, as uh, and I say this as people who live in the 21st century, we need to become reacquainted with Scripture. In the Middle Ages, from the time that they were children, 
they started memorizing scriptures. So St. Thomas, if you look at the Catena Aurea, that's not scripture, it's, it's patristic texts. What St. Thomas did is absolutely phenomenal. He had a memory that was so well stocked. And one of the works, one of the things that we need to do is to restock our memory. And part of that is just simply reading scripture, not worrying too much about what comes, but just digesting the text. And um, I think that there are certain things that we can do to um, make the text come alive for us. We don't just sit there waiting, you know, passively, completely passively for God to shoot an arrow at us. Um, but there are things that we can do trying to understand what the text says, try to understand how you can apply it to yourself. There is a kind of, of simple work that we can do that often helps us engage the text more, um, more deeply. So sometimes it is arrows being shot at us, but other times it's just the simple operation of um, understanding the text, asking yourselves, how does this apply to me? What can I do to um, make myself more receptive to this text? There are all sorts of questions that you can ask yourself. And they may not, you know, Lexio Divina may not be a very exhilarating time, but the important thing is to do it day in and day out. I have to tell you that at the monastery, the um, time for Lexio Divina is after breakfast, and that is a really bad time for me. I'm ready for my first nap. Um, <laughs> so it's not always the best. Um, you know, you just have to make do with what you've got. And it pays off in the long run. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.